powerlessness, disadvantage, isolation, inexperience, weakness. There are so many organizations, movements, projects and government initiatives that seek to help, support and encourage those who are impeded in some way by their socio-economic status, culture, education, age, mental or physical ability or geographical location. However, one major institution, and not just in America, appears to actively take advantage of and discriminate against people who have fewer financial, social, linguistic and intellectual resources, or who lack the maturity and life experience to be able to fully appreciate when and how circumstances are being used strategically against them. The cases of Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey that were presented in the docu-series Making a Murderer encapsulate how the criminal justice system is not oriented towards fairness when it comes to disadvantage or those perceived as inferior. Certain social groups are easy scapegoats on whom to fob off or project the ills of society that are too difficult to untangle or resolve in any other satisfactory way. These people are dispensable, and if evidence of their worthlessness isn't readily forthcoming, then it's perfectly justifiable to manufacture it, or shift things around a bit so that they appear abhorrent, especially if the reputations or finances of more worthy citizens are at risk of being harmed. In this episode, we're not going to focus on whether or not the defendants in the various cases mentioned are guilty or innocent, but rather to see how there is a common factor of apparent massaging of evidence and testimony by authorities and how easily they manage to persuade juries and victims' families that their version of events, however imagined, is the gospel truth. It's only when there is an exoneration or when a case is pursued as a very likely wrongful conviction that we wonder how on earth these convictions occurred in the first place. What too few people remember when looking at a case is that the prosecution has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the person charged committed the crime, not the defence prove that they didn't. And even if the person seems like the kind of person who probably committed the crime, that is not, in terms of due process, a justification for conviction. In practice, however, it often is, and the hundreds of wrongful convictions that continue to be revealed year after year, especially since the advent of DNA testing, demonstrate that prosecution teams are often acting extremely unethically, and that juries are just not getting it. The corruption exposed in Manitowoc County, Wisconsin, in making a murderer, reminded me of Tudor, England, where inconvenient courtiers or innocent bystanders who could be tortured into taking the fall for someone else or giving authorities a reason to have them executed were coerced into confessing to treason. Just as ambitious dukes and barons would do anything to attain wealth or power, and would plot to portray a non-male progeny-producing queen as an adulteress, or a religious rival as a heretic, the law enforcement and criminal justice authorities in Manitowoc County appear to have gone to great lengths to prevent Stephen Avery from winning his previous wrongful conviction compensation lawsuit. 
and to make sure that even his name could not be associated with any noble cause or legislative legacy. There are parallels in making a murderer to other cases of proven or likely wrongful conviction. Just like in the Adnan Syed case that was made famous in the podcast serial, there are strong suggestions of police tampering, and the convictions of the primary defendants in both cases swing predominantly on the testimonies of star witnesses, who are coached into supposedly confessing to having seen or been part of aspects of the crime. Neither former friend Jay Wilds in the Syed case nor nephew Brendan Dassey in the Avery case can keep their stories straight and they both give different and unconvincing versions at different times, inconsistencies that are conveniently ignored by the prosecution or massaged into supposed sense for the jury by speculative justifications. We're able to hear the blatant verbal and non-verbal cues and persuasive coaxings of the police interrogators in both cases via the interrogation tapes and videos. In both cases, the location of the victim's car is said to have been indicated by witnesses, star witness Jay in the Syed case, and by a searching relative in the Avery case. Yet there is evidence in both cases that the cars may have been placed in their discovered positions by the police in order to be consistent with a particular prosecutorial narrative. Why did Sergeant Andrew Colborne of the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department call in a license plate number that matched Halbach's plates on the very day that she was reported missing? Yet her car was not reported as found till two days later, when two volunteer searchers were said to have found it, surprisingly quickly, within ten minutes, they said, in the huge Avery salvage yard. And why did the news report revealing the cause of Heyman Lee's death and the identity of Adnan Syed as a newly arrested suspect, let slip that the discovery of Hay's car had been withheld by the police while they searched for a suspect. Why did the photo show Hay's inexplicably clean car in its supposed discovered position over green, unbrowned grass when it had supposedly been there since she disappeared six weeks before? Both Jay Wilds and Brendan Dassey find themselves in compromised situations with the police that persuade them to succumb to the supposed confessions that are being demanded of them. For Jay, it is some combination of his prior low-grade criminal history and the threat that he himself will be charged with capital murder that allows the police to pressurise him into collaborating with them in implicating Adnan Syed as the murderer of Syed's former girlfriend, Hei Min Lee. He complies and feeds them the answers they want, with some reassurances that he will avoid severe penalties. For Jay, this works out. He never spends a day in jail and manages to get away with a few years of probation. I use the term get away simply in relation to the court's charge that Jay assisted in the burial of Heyman Lee. There is, to date, no evidence that he did anything related to the murder, so in reality, we should think of his having got away with something, with not being further persecuted by the criminal justice system. However, Jay's long-term possibility of putting whatever really happened behind him and living in quiet obscurity on the other side of the country, he moved understandably well away from Baltimore once the whole business was over, has been destroyed. Because as Adnan Syed's story and possible wrongful conviction has reached wider public awareness, 
Jay has become a pariah on social media and has even had personal threats made to him and his family. With Jay and Brendan, despite their both having apparently lied in order to secure convictions for the prosecution of people close to them, we see two very different public responses. Jay is reviled, whereas Brendan has growing support in the public arena. This is no doubt because Brendan is seen much more clearly as a victim of the system than Jay. Jay was 19 when he became involved in Adnan Syed's case. He has stuck to his general story that he knows Adnan murdered Haymin Lee and has never admitted, during the 17 years since Haymin Lee was murdered, that he may have been coached and scared into testifying against Adnan by the police. Brendan, on the other hand, retracted his false testimony almost as soon as he had made it. But with a scrawled signature, he had already signed his life away. We can see and understand how Brendan was manipulated. But with Jay, much of why he became a ready pawn for the police is unknown, even if the actual manipulation is more than blatant on listening to the interrogation tapes and through many of Jay's versions not matching subsequently discovered evidence, much of it during the past year since Serial's exposition of the case ended. Brendan, a minor, and three years younger than Jay had been during his interrogations, was strategically manoeuvred during the interrogations rather than persuaded beforehand into making his dubious confessions by police who took full advantage of his compromised mental abilities and who gave him utterly false reassurances that he would be OK if he was honest. This was an example of playing fast and loose with the principles of the already questionable Reed technique of interrogation, which stipulates that there should be no promises of leniency. Well, telling a mentally compromised minor in various ways that it will be okay and better if he tells the truth and is honest is certainly a way of implying that there will not be severe repercussions. Of course, this is a very persuasive way of getting a very vulnerable person who is already confused and anxious to just give them what they want. This minor, Brendan, who though 16 had the intellectual and emotional level of a pre-adolescent, was conned into thinking that even if he made up and fantasised about the elements of the story that the police seemed to want to hear from him, he would be OK and could go home afterwards. This was not to be the case. He would be arrested as soon as he had put his clumsy, childlike signature to paper. He has spent the last 10 years in prison and has no prospect of being released till he is 58 years old. Watching the videos and reading the transcripts of Brendan's police interrogations can only lead anyone trained in child and adolescent development to conclude that this was manipulation and perversion of a minor in its sickest form. A minor not just legally because of his chronological age, but also because of his limited and developmentally much younger mental capacity. Brendan's IQ score, that should have precluded or at least invalidated such interrogations, were tossed aside as irrelevant. The police used cajoling, sweet-talking voices, suggesting they knew full well they were dealing with a child, and offered Brendan drinks and sandwiches to make him think they cared about his well-being. They used the same tactics as paedophiles who persuade children to trust them with candy. 
And of course, Brendan fell for it. They knew he would. Characterise the interrogations of Brendan Dassey as fully cognizant abuse of a learning disabled minor. One of the saddest parts in the Making a Murderer documentary is when Brendan expresses his awareness that he's not too bright to his mum on the phone from jail. She's trying to get him to stand up for himself, and he says, I'm stupid, mum. It's a heartbreaking moment. A kid who knows he's been had, who's kicking himself for being so gullible but who feels completely powerless to reverse what has been done to him. On another call with Mum, his childlike thought processes and his slowness to comprehend the gravity of the situation he's in is revealed when he worries that he's going to miss WrestleMania on TV. Most people are ignorant of the ease with which police can and do extract false confessions, especially from minors. Another famous case in which false confessions were coerced out of minors was the case of the West Memphis Three, which involved two minors and one who was barely 18 and who ended up on death row for 18 years. Thankfully, all three are now free, albeit on a compromise Alford plea for the murder of three eight-year-olds in 1993. And the oldest member of the group, Damien Eccles, is making sure the public is educated about what can happen to any ordinary but inexperienced and naive teenager in the American criminal justice system. In that case, too, one of the defendants, Jesse Miss Kelly, had severely compromised intellectual skills, which were fully exploited for the goal of getting statements that supported the prosecutor narrative and resultant convictions. When Jesse Miskelly was convicted at 17, he was deemed to have the IQ of a second grader. We can hear how during interrogations he was fed all kinds of squalid details by his interrogators about how the murder and torture of the three boys supposedly took place, and how he attempted to feed them back correctly, sometimes simply parroting what had just been suggested to him. But his answers were inconsistent across statements, as he kept forgetting these lessons and comments about one of the boys getting all bruised up because Damien Eccles had hit him indicated that he had seen bruises in photos that he'd been shown because bruises don't appear immediately after an assault. Jesse Miss Kelly parroted details that had been widely reported in the media and said that he'd been places at times that he couldn't have been and that he'd received a call from one of the other defendants at a time when he had no access to a phone. Jesse Miskelly's confessions are very similar in tone to Brendan Dassey's, an urge to please, trying desperately to follow cues, but giving away that they are cues by his inability to retain what he's being told, because they're abstract words, not visual memories of something that actually happened that he's remembering. The sad truth is that many people in the general public, and unfortunately many who sit on juries, have the naive idea that law enforcement are always honest and fair, and that if a person is arrested, then they must have done something wrong. Just talk to any average group of people about confessions, and a significant number of them will poo-poo the idea that anyone could be so stupid as to admit to something they didn't do. They have no idea about the psychological impact of methods such as the Reed technique, where suspects are initially sweet-talked, as we saw in Brendan Dassey's case, 
to bring down their guard and persuade them to talk freely, and then when they're tired and have run out of answers, sometimes because they simply don't have any answers, then the oppressive accusatory style kicks in. The method is successful in eliciting false confessions precisely because the person becomes so browbeaten and exhausted that they will say anything just to get the interrogators off their back and end the interview. Their reasoning skills, that implicating themselves is a very bad long-term idea, become relegated to the immediate pressing desire and need to terminate the interrogation. What the suspect says during the friendly phase of the discussion can be distorted into having meanings that the suspect never intended. And the further confusion and exasperation that this arouses then leads the person to concede or agree to hypotheses because they are simply too exhausted to argue further. These hypotheses or suppose this happened type statements that are initiated by interrogators can then get magically transformed into utterances of fact. A classic case of this happening was in the Amanda Knox case, where the police urged her to imagine that her employer, Patrick Lumumba, had killed Meredith Kircher when they had Amanda reduced to a terrified mental pulp. Then, with the added advantage that Knox knew little Italian at the time, and a collaborative interpreter, who was on the payroll of the police department, steered her towards signing a document that stated her police-induced speculations about it as a mere possibility, as actual witnessed facts. Knox had no idea at the time whether or not Patrick Lumumba was guilty, but was given the impression by the police that they had something concrete on him. Another police interrogatory mind game to trick a person into assuming that their imaginings might have some truth to them, so maybe there's no harm in just giving in. Amanda Knox was never exonerated in the criminal courts for the slander charge that ensued after Lumumba was cleared of the murder and has since been pursued by Lumumba in civil court for defamation. If a person being interrogated is a child or minor, or a person who is intellectually compromised, this process is much shorter and even easier for police interrogators. It's also ironic that suspects are often pressurised into taking a polygraph test, a test that isn't accepted as valid evidence in court because of its extreme unreliability. One wonders why it's even legal for police to use the test, given its inability to verify anything at all, other than that the person is made noticeably anxious by certain questions. You know, like, did you murder your wife? Or, did you cut your flatmate's throat? Anyone in police custody, however innocent, and especially in the traumatic condition of one's spouse or friend having just been killed, is going to have a spike of stomach-churning fear when they suddenly understand that the police are looking at them as a possible suspect. A polygraph result can be a false positive for all kinds of physiological and psychological reasons that have nothing to do with lying. Did you murder your wife? Did you, did you cut your flatmate's throat? Did you murder your wife? Did you cut your flatmate's throat? Did you murder your wife? The suspect is put into a double bind because if they agree to be tested and the test comes up positive because they're fearful and anxious, this brings the police down even more heavily on them as their suspect status suddenly ramps up. If the interviewee refuses the test, then the police suspect them of having something to hide. You're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. Again, 
We're operating here at a Tudor or even medieval level of persecutory prosecution, where the suspected witch is deemed to have not, after all, been a witch if she drowns in the ducking stool. But if she floats and lives, then she proves herself to be a witch and will then die anyway at the burning stake. Now, in the Stephen Avery case, the significance of Halloween is never really homed in on, except in passing. And I mean the significance of Halloween for the bonfire he was burning on the night of Teresa Halbach's murder. It's interesting how Halloween is used or conveniently not used to further a prosecution's case. That Avery should have been burning a bonfire that night was entirely unremarkable. One can imagine that he might have burned one now and again anyway, just to get rid of a few odds and ends, and to kill two birds with one stone, excuse the pun, to even create a warm, sociable, outside setting during the cold Wisconsin winter, to which he might invite his friends and relatives. And why not? In the Amanda Knox case, even though the murder of Meredith Kircher actually occurred on November 1st, Halloween and its supposedly evil influences were used to concoct all manner of absurd stories about sex orgies fueled by ancient satanic rites connected to Halloween. Somehow, all the Halloween activity from the night before, the 31st, people in costumes waiting for special one-off shuttle buses to aid in the transport of partygoers, were conveniently shifted in the eyes of heroin addict star witness Antonio Curatolo, to have occurred on the following night when the murder occurred, and when, incidentally, there were no more shuttle buses nor people thronging the piazza in costumes. You see, Signor Curatolo observed the murderous comings and goings of Amanda Knox and Raffaele Sollecito in the context of these specifically Halloween activities, murderous comings and goings that extraordinarily took place 24 hours before Meredith Kircher was actually murdered. Funny that. But you see, it's not quite so funny when you reflect that this wasn't the first time that our friend Antonio had been conveniently located in a public place to observe criminal activities, and that he had on that other occasion been more than willing to testify for the prosecution. Don't forget either that Antonio was a heroin user known to the police, and just as Jay Wilds in the Adnan Syed case may have been blackmailed into submission partially by his own known drug-related activity, Mr. Curatolo also had good reasons to butter up the police. If you're interested in knowing more about the absurdity of Antonio Curatolo's testimony and that of another supposedly incontrovertible witness in the Amanda Knox case, we will be doing an episode in the future that puts the testimony of both those witnesses concretely into context. The whole ostensible Halloween-related satanic undertone to Meredith Kircher's murder rampant in media reports was not exactly discouraged by the obsessive public prosecutor Giuliano Mignini. Halloween was a convenient hook on which to hang the ridiculous theories of the prosecution and from which to feed the lurid, sensation-seeking international trash media. On the other hand, in the Teresa Halbach murder case, the very fact of Halloween was shoved aside in order to make Stephen Avery's bonfire seem sinister. Funny that. 
The fact that it's thoroughly normal for people to make a point of burning a bonfire on Halloween night and to invite people, as Stephen did Brendan, probably in an attempt to reach out affectionately to his reclusive and socially inept nephew, is swept aside to make the bonfire event look sinister and suspicious. But social overtures of caring and affection don't make great media stories, and they certainly don't make great prosecution cases. What does make a great media story to rival competitors, which one TV journalist at the time unashamedly enthused, and a great prosecution tale, is murder. And a bonfire with a girl's remains in it certainly is a great story. But a Halloween bonfire that splits its contents of one girl's remains with a fire pit ten miles away a bonfire that miraculously emits no strange odours that anyone remarks upon, is odd indeed. What's also odd is that if Stephen Avery had the foresight to clean up all that blood splatter that must have been all over the garage when he shot Teresa Halbach in there, as the bullet in the wall suggested the bullet that was found several months later. You'd think he'd also have the foresight to get rid of those bones from the fire pit, given that he was well aware that the police were snooping around his property. You know, just like Amanda Knox and Raffaele Sollecito had the foresight to clean up all that DNA of theirs in Meredith Kircher's room, but make sure that they left all those little splotches of Rudy Gaudet's DNA so that only he and not they would be implicated in Meredith Kircher's murder. Another sad but all too common aspect of cases in which there's a glaring lack of evidence against the defendants, and even evidence to make the prosecution claims look laughably ridiculous if it weren't for the tragic consequences of the charges, is the gullibility of murder victims' families, even in cases that stink to high heaven of police tampering and framing and prosecutorial misconduct. Victims' families, against all rational thinking, seem to more often than not swallow hook, line and sinker every aspect of the prosecution's case, however outrageous, unsubstantiated and impossible given evidence presented by the defence. While this can be infuriating, it's also perhaps understandable. Families have a deep and urgent psychological need to understand how and why their relative died, and a natural desire to see the perpetrator punished and removed from society. The agony of the circumstances of a loved one's death being shrouded in mystery is unbearable, and not having an identifiable person towards whom to direct feelings of wrath and even vengeance is horrifyingly frustrating. Relatives are not rational in these moments and are emotionally primed to latch on to the first solution offered to them. Unfortunately, this tumultuous state of mind appears often to severely cloud the judgment of victims' families. They're already exhausted mentally with coming to terms with their loss and the nature of that loss, and it's not surprising that they're not predisposed to analysing dispassionately or entertaining the vagaries of confusing matters such as mistaken identity, police corruption or prosecutorial misconduct. They have a vested interest in the crime being solved in a straightforward way, without complications, especially involving the only people authorised to solve and make redress for the case. 
the professionals charged with solving the details of the murder and those who carried it out. Because of the psychological susceptibility of victims' family members, police and prosecutors are at a huge advantage for gaining support and credibility for their claims. And when they harness the media, which they always do, to propagate their narrative of the crime, the natural sympathy towards victims' families only serves to reinforce public approval for their theory of the case. The lid is then clamped firmly on the prosecution's theory of the crime, sealed and made into a nicely packaged deal in the public's eyes, when irresponsible but popular talking heads on cable TV then mouth off their condemnation of the defendant and perpetuate the dissemination of unsubstantiated rumours and malicious gossip. During the first week of 2016, after the release of the documentary Making a Murderer, the TV channel HLN was particularly responsible for this kind of misleading of viewers, conveniently leaving out important details about inappropriate intervention by Manitowoc County Police, timing of supposed evidence discovery, and facts about the forensic analysis that made their narratives either scientifically impossible or highly suspect. These popular shows often invite victims or victims' family members on as guests to feed the low-brow frenzy that's now become a regular and essential part of such true crime entertainment. And this validation and showcase sympathy that the media, especially television, showers on victims' family members only serves to reinforce any distorted or unreasoned thinking. Sometimes it seems that victims' families have not even paid attention to the contradictory and exculpatory evidence, or in many cases sheer lack of evidence, or the obvious fantasising fabrication and arbitrary speculation by the prosecution. So swept along are they on a tide of grief, a need for that glibly and ubiquitously touted condition, closure and the temporary high of distraction from excruciating pain that media attention affords them, victims' families are as much victims and pawns of the system as defendants, except that in wrongful convictions, or cases where defendants are framed, they are oblivious to the fact that they are being intentionally led up the garden path, and that in fact, their loved one has become the object of a travesty of justice and the medium through which law enforcement and prosecution teams can stick unmerited feathers in their caps, or perhaps in the case of Stephen Avery, save millions of dollars in compensation money. That Teresa Hulbuck's brother asserts the validity of Brendan Dassey's quite obviously coached confession before he has even seen the interrogation videos, is disturbing, especially since he must know that Brendan is a minor, but perhaps indicative of the tendencies just described. In spite of glaring evidence of possible misconduct, Halbuck's brother continues to have complete faith in the police. The family of Meredith Kircher also continues to be completely blind to the evidence and to somehow have missed the scientifically impossible claims of the Italian prosecutors, even after the Italian courts have completely exonerated Amanda Knox and Raffaele Sollecito. And this is a family who had a scientifically proven perpetrator right under their nose, clearly identified from the get-go. 
In both the Stephen Avery case and the Amanda Knox case, the victims' families are completely taken in by the police and prosecution, who seem to have made it their business to mask the truth from them. The family of Heimin Lee in Adnan Syed's case also appear to have succumbed to the prosecution's case at the time of Adnan Syed's trial. But after this past year, there are hints that after new evidence has emerged, at least the victim's brother may be starting to step tentatively towards the discussions and to be open to re-examining things from an objective perspective. In Stephen Avery's first conviction for rape, the victim herself conceded that she had made a mistake in identifying him, and she and Avery made their peace. This kind of reconciliation between survivor and former defendant is perhaps more salutary in human terms than any formal exoneration. Along with the horror of the crime itself, this survivor also had to suffer the knowledge that her mistake had contributed to putting a man away for 18 years. One might forgive her for being defensive and protesting that she should not have been expected to know for sure given the brutality of the crime and her psychological state thereafter. But Penny Bernstein is a mensch. She reached out to Stephen Avery and then reframed her experience by becoming a mediator between victims and perpetrators in the restorative justice movement. However, Despite the outright exoneration of Amanda Knox, the family of Meredith Kircher still seems to be mired and bogged down in the toxic propaganda against Amanda Knox, much of which is believed to be disseminated by one of Meredith's brothers on social media, under various names. One only has to read John Kircher's embarrassingly misguided and misinformed book about his daughter's murder to see how duped and played for media sensationalism and the saving face of criminal justice authorities victims' families can be, even years after their loss and even after the exoneration of the originally convicted. It is perhaps the obstinate refusal of victims' families to let go of the original line fed to them by police and prosecution, even in the face of astonishingly glaring contrary evidence, that slows down the process of exoneration when it happens and that keeps the flame of resentful doubt festering in the public domain long after the former convict has been freed. For Adnan Syed, there is a glimmer of hope that Heyman Lee's family will come to the table and consider what has been revealed over the past year. They, at least, have not allowed themselves, like the Kirchers and others, to become perversely glorified idols of victimology, regaled by the media and holding court to manipulators and hysterical social media groupies. Will the Halbucks submit to the same forces? Or will they step away from the conviction-at-all-costs mindset and take the time to examine all the evidence, however damning of their law enforcement heroes it may turn out to be? What's common to all these cases is that the police coaching and setting up is so obvious as to be remarkable for not having been exposed at the time or to have been picked up on by the jury. It emphasises how brazenly corrupt police can be. They seem to have no fear that anyone will notice. The prosecution will distract the jury with emotive anecdotes, and the jury won't be giving these details enough heed to pick up on their significance. 
Whatever one believes about the innocence or guilt of Stephen Avery for the murder of photographer Teresa Halbach, there was too much evidence of inappropriate access to the crime scene, as well as possible interference in the search for and uncovering of ostensible evidence by Manitowoc County Police for any intelligent person not to deem that the supposedly damning results of the investigation were highly unreliable. When coupled with oddities like there not being any of Teresa Halbach's DNA in Stephen Avery's trailer, nor on Halbach's truck key that mysteriously appeared in Avery's bedroom four months into the investigation, after multiple searches had already been conducted, one has to at least concede that the prosecution's contention about how her killing transpired was completely incorrect and that there was such a mountain of reasonable doubt that Stephen Avery should not have been convicted on it. What too many people seem to think, including too many prosecutors, is that it doesn't matter if one can't prove a victim died in the way or by the hand of the person they want the jury to believe they did. All that matters is that the defendant looks suspicious and that he arouses distaste. Enough distaste that a jury will convict him anyway, because, hey, he probably did it, even if the particular evidence presented in court is refuted by the defence. Or even if there is no evidence, just an imagined scenario made up by the prosecution to fit some already existing or manufactured circumstantial evidence, even innocuous circumstantial evidence that might reasonably be interpreted in any number of innocent ways. Top it off with a vulnerable witness who can be manipulated or browbeaten into making some supporting statements. A jury too uneducated, already biased or indifferent to really listen to the evidence and exercise independent, abstract and deductive reasoning. And hey, bingo, you have a conviction. The, he probably did it because he sounds like the kind of person who could be a murderer, jury reaction, rather than... Does the evidence actually support his having committed this particular murder? Reasoned questioning is all too prevalent in the American criminal justice system, which contributes to there being so many false convictions, or convictions based on hunches rather than evidence. If there is no evidence, or if the evidence sounds sketchy, you should not convict. But you see... Prosecutors know what actually convinces juries. They know that in reality, a large proportion of jurors are swayed by emotive anecdotes, by their gut reaction to the defendant and confirmation bias, rather than by their own cold, intellectual, dispassionate analysis. Prosecutors know how to make the defendant look very, very ugly. They have become experts in making a murderer. You have been listening to Routing Out, conceived, produced and edited by Zoe Badovinik. Music by Zoe Badovinik and AZ. Join us next time on Routing Out.